Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Jonathan Evison. Um, I am the author of nine novels, most recently, uh, Again and Again, which I'll be talking about today with Beth. Jonathan Evison's new book, Again and Again, follows Eugene, a man living in an assisted living facility who swears he has lived over a thousand years. That is, he remembers every one of his past lives, believing himself to have been reincarnated several times throughout human and even feline history. As Eugene nears the end of his current lifetime, he strikes up an unexpected bond with Angel, his nursing assistant who shows Eugene a sense of kindness and empathy that he isn't used to. Through this unlikely friendship, the reader begins a partnership with the author as we learn about and question Eugene's lives. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Jonathan Evison. I'm kind of curious, how do you describe this book? You know, you're my first interview, so I don't know yet. Help me. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, one, obviously, having read the book, you realize it's a really hard book to talk about without spoilers because of the nature of the narrator. And so I don't really know how to talk about it. I Here's how I framed it for myself, if this helps. Like, when I wrote the book... It always starts with character for me, obviously. But, you know, this book was very much about the dance with the reader. I really wanted to I really wanted to give the reader a very active participation in this book. I wanted to undermine their expectations. I wanted to dance with them and make them do everything I was doing backwards and heels. And so the sort the sort of the main conceit of the novel for me was the narrative structure of the book. And, and how it unfolds and how I play with the reader's expectation. But I think a lot of readers and reviewers are getting out of it, early readers and reviewers are getting out of it, is more the emotional resonance and the um, sort of the messaging of the book about, you know, the the nature of the elusive nature of love, which is sometimes right in front of us. But um, for me, I frame it as kind of, um, let's just get it out of the way. It's an unreliable narrative. There's just no way to talk about it without broaching that subject. So that becomes about managing the information. And really, you know, in order to pull that off, you really have to um, earn the reader's trust first and foremost, you know. So that's that's the first big task. And then then you just work with the reader to undermine their expectations and give them a good ride. I mean, I, I'm not I've never been somebody that's trying to edify the reader with my worldview, you know, maybe a little bit sneakily, but it's less social political and more about the human heart, you know, getting people to soften up, you know, because we live in kind of a cynical age. So I like to sort of disarm them and then make them cry um, and also make them laugh along the way, hopefully. So, um, you know, there's that. I think it's a, I, I wanted to entertain very much with this book. I wanted it to be a, I wanted it to be a partnership because, you know, at the end of the day, that's why I write books. It's not to hear my own voice. It's to connect. You know, I'm not writing in a vacuum, although I was for 20 years when nobody, not even my mom was reading, you know, eight unpublished books. But for the last nine books, uh, you know, 
it's about that connection with the reader. And, and, and the better I get, you know, with each book, I feel like in some ways I learn new things and I get better. And maybe I lose some things along the way. I don't know. I haven't been able to figure that out yet. But I realize how beholden I am to the reader because I can, you know, I can try to create effects until I'm blue in the face. But unless I'm communicating those to the reader, unless we're working together, they don't work. And so the more books I write, the more I learn that the the, that the reader is the best tool I have in my belt. And when I say the reader, I'm not there picturing the, you know, female 30 to dead demographic, which is who reads my books mostly. You know, I'm just thinking of myself at the other end, trying to please myself as the reader, because I know what I love as a reader. I love to be surprised. I love to be engaged. I love to be actively, you know, I mean, I, I, I came up with the idea with using puzzle pieces on this book because the novel very much is like a puzzle. The novel works like a puzzle and Gino's a puzzler too. So, you know, it's topically related in that way, but you know, this book is very much a puzzle narratively speaking. So you'll have to tell me if I ask a question, you'll have to just kind of guide me through what's what we're able to talk about and what's off limits. With... I don't even know. You know what I mean? I just <laughs> I don't even know if you can talk about it without spoilers. I just, I think it's kind of impossible. So that'll just make the job that much harder. They'll have to forget. I'm not going to spoil what I think is a spoiler. I mean, I'm not going to spoil what I think where I would be spoiled. But I do think we have to talk about, you know, reincarnation. We're allowed to talk about that, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the main story is told from one perspective. It's it's a gentleman named Eugene. And, you know, it's the life we're hearing and seeing from at the at this point in time. But Eugene you know, can remember all of his other lives. He, you know, he's, he claims that he's been reincarnated again and again since, you know, the 11th century or for 11 centuries. And it was not always, you know, he's not always been living as a man. Sometimes his life would be as a little girl or as a cat. And as you were writing this, did each being in the book have a different voice or or was it one soul and voice that was you know the same from person to person to person to cat i i sort of saw the soul as a uh, as a bridge so the soul is kind of a through line there is a there is a consciousness of past existences in him so it is sort of one delineated soul um even when he's oscar wilde's cat um, he he is aware of his his past experiences, and um, you know, of course, all along, uh, people question the veracity of this. This becomes one of the fundamental questions of the book: Is this guy for real, or is he deluded, or you know? And and I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know exactly where I stand on the subject. I know that, like most human beings, we experience this uh, frequently a sort of deja vu or. You know, we, we we experience things that feel to our to us sensory so real and so remembered that, like, you know, part of me really believes that, that it is possible in this idea of the old soul. Um, I see it in children sometimes that are that are uh, just like, wow, they have this understanding that is so far beyond the, the purview of their their their, uh, you know, natural experience that you you have to wonder but in the book it is is constantly a question i mean you know this is where the unreliability factors in in a big way is that you know the mental health professional at the elder care facility happens to think that eugene is 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 uh deluded and that he's delusional he's making this stuff up but angel begins to sort of believe him but i i think angel who is the caregiver 
who is, uh, you know, he's the orderly at the elder care facility. Uh, I think he begins to see that it doesn't matter to him whether or not it's real because it's all real. You know, we, we all have our defenses and we all have our, uh, you know, we all have our uh, mental constructs and emotional constructs that just help us get through the day. So, well, and I, I wondered, did you do research on reincarnation or how much of this is pure imagination and how much comes from, you know, religious or spiritual beliefs? Well, you know, I mean, obviously I did some, you know, I did some research on uh, past life regressions and, and, and things like that. But mostly it comes out of the imagination when you know what the nature of the book is you can see why, you know, there's, there's reasons I chose certain, you know, characters to serve certain purposes, so forth. But uh, like, I mean, it's when you do research on past life regression, it's just like I said, I mean, there's like, nobody can conclusively say one or another. And there's a lot of, you know, the the science community is always going to come out and say, no, well, when you have these deja vus and this happens, this is certain synapses is like, sometimes you feel like you see the future, you know, you'll have this moment, like where you see something and people talk about visualizations. Well, you know, the neurologists have answers to that, like how the synapses fire and, and, and they have a cause for that. You know what I mean? So it's like, you're never going to get a conclusive answer. You either have this sort of like new agey sort of spiritual uh, cultish for lack of a better word on one side. And then you have the scientific community on the other side. And and, and this book lies toggling between those two extremes. So what about the research into all of the different times and places of each of these lives that, you know, the various lives that lived for 11 centuries? Well, 10th and 11th century Spain was actually really hard uh, to get, uh, to, to get, you know, because when you do research, you're looking for information that's going to make it feel lived in terms of like setting and things like that. You know, like you don't want to smell the coffee on the author's breath as he just dumps information that he got off of Wikipedia or whatever, you know what I mean? So the big challenge for that is, is there's not a lot out there. I mean, there's a lot of historical stuff about the Byzantine empire and then, you know, crossing the Straits of Gibraltar. And, you know, that, you know, we know quite a bit about Moorish Spain in terms of like it's alleged uh, progressiveness in terms of accepting different uh, belief systems and so forth. And so, but it, it it amounts to a lot of the same information over and over. So like what was really challenging for me is to, 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 to like really get a sense of what Savi felt like in, in, in the 10th and 11th century and things like that. And to sort of, you know, cause you, you, there's not a lot of blueprints out there in the city, you know, like street maps and things like that. And so you had to dig pr- pretty deep. So I did a considerable amount of research on that. And it did not, like I say, yield a ton. I like, you know, for small world, it was the transcontinental railroad. Like I could spend the rest of my life wading through research on the transcontinental railroad. And you have to be even more careful with it because God knows there's like 5 million old men that just do nothing but study the transcontinental (laughs) railroad. So I make one slip up and I'm going to get a thousand emails from some 80 year old guy, you know, in Boise, that's like, well, you mentioned a third rail. That would be a diesel train. You know I mean? So you always have to be careful with this stuff. And, and so you have to go beneath just the knowledge of the thing you're researching. Because, I mean, the, the goal to me is to make it feel lived, is, is, is to, you know, like the iceberg. Like, I want all the research to be under the surface. You know, I don't want to... I don't want to burden the reader with information that sounds like it's from research. You know, it needs to feel lived. And and so, yeah, that one presented a challenge. Oscar Wilde, that was not super challenging. 
Um, the Polynesian stuff wasn't as hard in a sense because there's just not really a lot to refute anything I decided to imagine. You know what I mean? And and I don't go as delve as deeply into that. One of the um, one of the ones I researched quite a bit that didn't end up in the novel as much as I thought was York, who is the the he was the the black slave on the Lewis and Clark mm. expedition. And, but I don't really, I forget because I've written four books since then, but uh, I don't think I actually used too much of York in the book, but that one was one where I did quite a bit of research, but there was quite a bit out there. Um, and to let you in on a little secret, you know, some writers love research. They're nerdy. They like to, you know, roll up their sleeves and like, oh, I can't wait to get to the research library and fill all these notebooks. I hate it. I hate it, man. <laughs> I just, I've learned to, I, I'm, I'm conscientious and I'm scrupulous about it, but I don't love the process. Because it's very, it admires you in a way because you find all this information that's peripheral to the story that you're really wanting to tell. But it's so interesting that you always have to deal with the temptation. Well, if I kind of try to fold that in, but then you're sort of, you always threatening diverting the narrative somehow. Everything has to have its place in the narrative and part of the, especially in a novel like this, that is a puzzle. You can't just start pick, you know, sticking pieces in there in the wrong place. So um, yeah, I've gotten really more efficient at the research. I've learned a lot of tricks over the years, like with West of Here, that was what, like 12, 13 years ago when I wrote that book. I must have read 30 volumes, you know, just dust, dusting off volumes in the research library. And I read the whole books and until I was just overwhelmed. And now what I do is I find the experts, figure out exactly what I need to know, and then just pick their brains and even work with them in terms of, you know, if they have a specialty, if it's a doctor, if it's a dentist, if it's a, you know, whoever I go, well, here's, here's a situation. Walk through this scene with me. What do I have to consider? I learn so much more that way because I learn it in the proper context rather than learning it as a layman. I'm learning like say the nomenclature. There's a, I remember when I was writing a first draft of uh, Legends of the North Cascades and, and I was using some language I had found. It was kind of some, um, slang soldier slang from afghanistan that i had found in like a new york times expose and i there's words like chew and things like that i was throwing in there and you know so but then i always have somebody vet that you know so i had a friend who did three tours and and when he vetted it he was hilarious he was like what the hell's a chew like you know what i mean so like as much as, as as meticulous as you may think you're being on the researcher the insider always knows more so it's really helpful for me and it's easy to find a dentist or a doctor. The more specialized the research becomes, the harder it becomes. And sometimes they're a real slippery culture. Like, I don't know what it is about train engineers. They don't <laughs> want to talk to you. I had to, you know, I had, thank God my friend Christina King is a train engineer and she's an old punk rock friend from like 40 years ago. And so she was like an open book to me, but she tried to turn me on to like 10 other people. They wouldn't answer my emails or they'd answer them. But then when I had questions, they wouldn't. I didn't know what, you know what I mean? It's interesting. It, it, so it, it presents its own problems, trying to find the experts that will work with you. Right now I'm working with a guy that's been an insurance agent for 40 years and he's brilliant. Like he knows everything about the history of insurance, but he also has a great literary mind. He was in English, you know, he has like his master's in English. So he has kind of an idea what I'm doing. And like, he, he's been amazing. Like he totally gets it. It's, it's an interesting process. You get to learn a lot about a lot of stuff, but I find that I like it better learning it from experts than I do just, just by reading book after book. That's the short answer. <laughs> so 
Eugene's life mission is to reconnect with his love, Gaia, who he met in medieval Spain. He's so preoccupied with Gaia that he sometimes misses opportunities to connect with individuals in his current lifetime. But Angel and Eugene, you mentioned they strike up this unlikely friendship. Angel is the, is the nursing assistant at Jean's assisted living facility. And, you know, at first he couldn't appear more different than Eugene. What is it about Angel that captures Eugene's attention and his trust? Well, it's like you said, I mean, this is a trope in all storytelling going back to the fireside. You know what I mean? Is this oddly paired couple. And it's an evergreen. I mean, it's that way for a reason, because it's very compelling to people from very different experiences with very different motivations at different places in their life. Um, sort of bridging the gap and learning from one another is just, you know, it's just an area that's really ripe for, for you know, revelation on both ends, you know. Um I just really love Eugene because, you know, I mean, as a caregiver, I mean, I've met so many kind, cool people like Angel. I mean, I was a respite care provider myself for like, you know, six, seven years. And and you meet a lot of um, you meet a lot of really cool, empathic, patient, sort of selfless people that um, are really good at what they do, which is to to help people and to comfort them. And um yeah, I think I mean I think the key is in in the old uh, the, the fact that they are oddly paired and that they can learn so much from each other and that though their experiences have been so different they are so much the same in some way as we all are on some human level and for some reason I think we know this is all obvious you know but we still have trouble connecting in so many ways I mean we are living in a in, in an era of unprecedented division you know we're more divided as ever along all these lines, social, political, economic, you know, religious. And, 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 but I think, you know, I mean, I think we all fundamentally understand that the human experience is, is actually very universal when you get down to it. And, and that's always been the key for me. I, I mean, I'm somebody who's always written outside the purview of my net, you know, of my lived experience. I use my jobs. I use what I know. They say, write what you know. I write what I don't know because I want to become a more expansive person and I want to learn. Of course, I can't hit any false notes. So I have to work with people whose experience closer mirrors what I'm writing. But uh, boy, where was I going with this? Uh, what was the first, what was the original question? I'm spiraling. About their unlikely friendship. But, you know, I did make a mental note that this wasn't your first book that had a caregiver aspect. So I didn't realize that came from a part of your life. So you are writing what you know in a way. Yeah, well, I, you know, when I go back and think about it, I mean, obviously the revised fundamentals of caregiving, yeah. and this is your life, Harriet Chance. I mean, Harriet is basically Bernard's caregiver through his dementia. Uh, in uh, you know, uh, Legends of the North Cascades, I mean, Dave is a parent, but it's a kind of a unique caregiving experience. It's very ha- hands-on, very you know, unique because of the survivalist element. And and in this book, obviously, there's a caregiver and. And in the book I just finished, which is called The Heart of Winter that I'm just turning in now, um, it's about uh, an elderly husband caring for his elderly wife who has really cared for him most of their 70 years. And now the tables are turned. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my, you know, I only have a few themes, you know, but so did Hemingway. You know what I mean? I mean, just uh, and, and one of them is people caring for each other because that's all we got kind of thing. You know, I mean, we're dependent on each other as, as much as the self gets in the way, um, you know, really at the end of the day, we're dependent upon one another. And so that dynamic never gets old to me. And I think there's just so much caregiving 
in all of our lives, whether it's, you know, official or not, you know, we're caring for us. We care for our friends. We care for our family. And so, yeah, caregiving is, God, I guess, in at least half of my books. You know, the, the way that this story unfolds through remembering lives lived or telling Angel about a past life or even retelling a corrected version of a story later after you pull the rug out from under us and give us an unreliable narrator, it allows for a bit of disjointedness, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like you weren't beholden to a strict structure for this book. Well, that's what it reads like. (laughs) But really, it's the strictest structure you could possibly conceive, I think, because in order to pull off an unreliable narrative, your logic has to be airtight. Right. So you can't have any, I mean, like just doing continuity on this book with fact checkers and the editorial team at Dutton, who were amazing, was exhaustive because you can't, you, there's rules, you know, there's rules and logic that have to apply to these different conceptions of the story. And there cannot, they have to be completely consistent. One false note and the whole house of cards falls apart. So it's actually the opposite. It is, it is extremely, it wasn't just me. Oh, this will be a good idea. Like I'm going to spin it this way because every time you do that, you create so many potential uh, continuity problems. And you know what I mean? And every one of those has to be completely airtight and logical. And in order to earn the, the, the key to earning the reader's trust is not having a likable narrator It is having a logically sound editor. It is logic that really wins us over. That's why we can we can look at Humbert Humbert. I mean, he's a creep. He's a freaking pedophile. And yet, on some level, we are actually sympathizing with him in the narrative only because his logic is so airtight. You know what I mean? Which that's like the ultimate unreliable narrative uh, in terms of like, how did he do that? You know, like, and, 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 and going back and doing archaeological, uh, you know, narrative archaeology on that i see that it's just because humbert humbert so the logic of the character has to be completely so yeah it's interesting that you would say that because that's what it seems like and and i wanted to i don't want the reader to be burdened with that i want it to just seem like a roller coaster and a ride but like the truth is underneath that there's so much reverse engineering and so much continuity that has to be exactly right because as you know as a reader one false note and you're gone god knows i made a horse canter instead of trot once and so (laughs) you know what i mean like a bunch of women from New Hampshire that have horses are like that horse is trotting, not cantering. And, you know, I mean, you can't hit a false note because you'll lose a reader. And so in, in a novel that deals so much in information and so much in context, it be that you I really had to double down on that. You know, now that you say that, it does make sense because you not only had to do keep it airtight for one life, you had to do it for all of the lives and you had to. make Right. It- and then I had to connect how the. Yes one life and the other life work together and how one became the other. And so, yeah, it's, it's, that was, that was the conceit of the novel for me is that exercise. Cause that was so, that was so fun for me. I think what people are getting out of the novel more is the emotional evocation and in, in the themes and, and they're crying at the end and stuff, which is wonderful. Cause at the end of the day, I want to make them laugh and cry. Do I want to change them somehow? Absolutely. But I don't want to do that in a psychological or mental or, like I said, ideological way so much as I want to do it to their heart. I want to soften. I want to soften the hardened heart. I want to I want to methodically scrape away the cynicism that just naturally happens to us as human beings, you know. And so I am trying to change the reader in some way, but I'm just not trying to browbeat them. You know, I'm trying to do it on on an emotional level. But I, I sneak some worldview stuff in there, obviously. I mean, 
I got my share of like well po- political stuff that's at work under the radar, I guess, you know. So one of the lives that Eugene claims to have lived is as Whiskers, who is Oscar Wilde's cat. And some of the quotes that Eugene attributes to Oscar Wilde about cats, you know, they're accurate. I, you made me look them up. <laughs> so I, I got to be right. I can't yeah. just start making up Oscar Wilde quotes. I didn't dig deeply, but I, I honestly couldn't find much about Oscar Wilde as a cat owner. So was he a cat guy? I believe so. I don't really know that much about his relationship with his cat. I think he had a cat or two. Uh, you know, I learned more about where he lived in his apartment yeah. and things like that and like the circumstances of his, uh, you know, arrest and things like that. But, um, you know, at some point it's all fiction. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I'm yeah. allowed to make some things up as long as I get yes, all the other things right. I will. I do have to say that I since reading this book, I have looked at my cat differently, <laughs> a lot differently. <laughs> so um, talk to me about the title. There were a couple of references in the book about living again and again, but there was also a reference to trauma that it wants to reenact itself again and again. Talk to me about this title again and again. Thanks for catching that. Well, you just talked about it perfectly. <laughs> okay. On to the next. Much just it up. Yeah. I mean, that's why this had to be the title of the book. Yeah. I mean, trauma does, you know, that's what that's that that's trauma's MO is to keep reliving itself over and over, you know, haunting people in their sleep and their waking lives and ruining their life, you know. So there's that element of it. And then there's this idea of, you know, living again and again and again. And, you know, the, the world just breaking your heart again and again. Now, you, 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 you pretty much hit right, right at the heart of it. So I would imagine that writing a book like this would be fun. Like you get to immerse yourself in a few different timelines and settings. So in terms of writing about these lives, did you have a favorite lifetime for this soul who we now know as Eugene? The present. I don't know. It was fun to write about Uruk in Spain. It was, I mean, it was always really, it, it, it was always writing about whiskers was always really fun. He's not in, in the book as much, but it was always very, I mean, it was, it was almost like I could just let my hair down and relax a little because you can have a little more fun. You know, there's so many cat people out there that you can kind of make little inside cat jokes, <laughs> you know, that people can get. And, and, you know, the, you, you always know the readers in kind of this warm place when you're in the cat's POV. So it takes a little of the pressure off in a weird way. Plus, you know, it's so speculative that that's kind of freeing because who can really say what a cat's thinking? Although there's scientists out there that will try to tell me, uh, you know, because they've done tests with electrodes or whatever. But, you know, so, yeah, that that was it was really fun writing the cat stuff because it's just it's it's just an exercise in pure unfettered imagination. And it's not tied as much to all the logistical things we've been discussing about um, continuity. And because who can say, <laughs> you know, I mean, who's going to unless a the sentient cat comes out of the woodwork here and starts taking me to task, I I, I I get to feel like I'm get to work pretty freely. So yeah, the whole book was fun. It was just really fun as a logical exercise. It was really fun to uh, just turn the screw so many times. You know, that was something I learned with This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. You know, I keep telling you how I'm learning about working with the reader. And, and when I turned in my first draft of This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, which is about an 80-year-old widow on an Alaskan cruise as she relives these critical moments of her life seemingly and at random when i first 
turned that book and my agent, my editor were just sort of silent because the book was very linear and it was almost sort of suffocating. It was like Harriet's small life in this big empty house and, you know, passing Bernard's slippers in the foyer every day and, and, you know, making tea and standing at the window and blowing on her tea and the steam of the tea curling up over her face and then walking through the foyer again. There's Bernard's slippers. It was like sort of stultifying to them. And I realized, well, this was a novel about memory and recollection and they don't work in a linear fashion. And here I had had my best, I'm always trying to frustrate linear timelines. And here I had my best opportunity to do that because memory and recollection are in no way, we don't think about our lives in a linear fashion at all. And so I reinvented that book in a period of like three months and realized that the key was, you know, to use Harriet's four story as the triggers for these events. So while it may seem random to the reader that just some readers are a little more, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to patronize readers, but some readers are just more, understand more what's going on in terms of it doesn't just seem like I shot all these memories like scatter shot out of a you know they're they're very I learned how to manage that information in a way like this is the opportunity to revisit this moment of Harriet's life because of what's going on in her four story so that that was a big exercise for me learning how to like manage the information of the story in order to undermine the reader's expectation and things like that and and I had so much fun with that this was kind of my opportunity to take that to a whole nother level and, and, you know, try to, to master it as much as possible. The goal is always to try to learn some new tools each time. You know, you don't want to just write the same book over and over. You want to actually get better. You want to challenge yourself. You don't want to have all the answers before you start. So you want to, you want to come out the other end of that book. A for me feeling like a more expansive person, like a little more em empathetic or empathic, by the end of it, but I also want to have learned how to do something in a narrative that I'd never attempted before. And so this book presented that challenge to me. And I consider it a success that that's not the part of the book anyone's really talking about. That means all that work is kind of invisible as it should be. So I guess I should be kind of proud of that. Although I like to talk about it and say, oh, <laughs> like did, you know, but like people seem to just be sort of, you know, they're getting it and intuitively and not, you know, so I guess I should feel good about that. So again and again might be considered a, a meditation on the meaning of life and death. And I'm wondering, so what, what did you learn? What did you take away from this? How did writing this novel affect you? And did it change the way you view life? That's a really good question. One I haven't really thought about, because I've been talking about all the things I learned in terms of craft and, and narrative and the thing. I think the theme is one that I have touched on before. So in that way, it wasn't completely relevatory to me. Like the say the thesis of the book wasn't exactly relevatory because it's something I know and something I live as a practice in my life about love and looking for it in 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 you know not the most obvious places and trying to find it in everybody, even your arch nemesis and seeing that it's everywhere. And that, so that's something I kind of already knew. It was kind of the getting there, you know, learning how to get to that theme with these particular characters and all these complexities involved. And, and, you know, my life has been a lot simpler than Eugene, you know, so it's one thing for me who've been, I've been pretty lucky, you know, I mean, I didn't have the greatest childhood or whatever, but like I've been compared to Eugene, 
I haven't had that many obstacles. So I think it was easier for me to get to that place than it was for Eugene to get to that place. So I'd say what I learned is, uh, you know, if I had to deal with things, if I in the future have to deal with more difficulty than I have so far, I think I feel a little more equipped, if that makes sense. I think I've developed some tools emotionally, I guess I would say. Well, the book is again and again. Jonathan Evison, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Jonathan Evison, author of the book Again and Again, which was published by Dutton. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.